0: So good to see all of you. Uh, this morning, for the past couple of weeks, I've been out of the country. I've been in Ghana, I just got back. On, uh, on Friday with the, with the team, and we had a, a wonderful time. I look forward to sharing a little bit more uh, of that with you a little bit later uh, as the weeks go by, but uh, we got to participate in planting uh, some churches. That was a great thing. We got to encourage some churches who are brand new, churches that are just a few months old. We saw uh, hundreds of folks make professions of faith, give their lives to Christ. We got to baptize a bunch of folks. Um, it was great. We did training, leadership training, for around 40-plus. Uh, pastors and church planners. It was just a, a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal two weeks. And I want to thank you uh, for your prayer support uh, and for this being a church that's about missions. And so if you're, if you're kind of on the fence about whether or not you want to go to that missions information meeting, I want to encourage you uh, to go. Now, I just got back uh, Friday afternoon. My body is six hours ahead. It's better uh, this morning than it was last night. I thought I was going to fall asleep in my own sermon. Um Last night and Saturday night service, I think I'm going to be uh, okay uh, today. But as we kick off, I want, would, you guys do, would you guys be willing to do something with me? Can we just do like this together? Can, we, can you guys do this with me? Can we do this? All right, all right. Do you think we could switch? Can we keep that same beat and go to clapping? Can we do like this? Can we do that? Is that good? Is that good? Look at that. Look at that. You guys are doing great. Hey, can we go back to snapping? Here we go. Snapping, snapping, snapping. All right, all right. So we do this. We you keep your hands out like this right here. Now, everybody, take your hands and bring them and touch them to your ears. To your ears. What? Who? Oh, what are you guys just? Not super silly. That's super silly and dumb. But why does it show? It shows that there is an unequal relationship between instruction and example. And that's going to be really important to remember today and really throughout this series. And there's a theme verse that we're going to remember throughout um, our study of 1 Timothy. I would love for you to memorize it. It's 1 Timothy 4.16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Preserve in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Now, what we believe is huge What we say we believe and how we teach what we know and what we believe, that is absolutely huge and I want to be ridiculously clear about that because I don't want anybody to misunderstand anything that I'm going to say later. What we believe is huge. What we teach is huge. It's so important. Truth is important. It's one of the reasons that our very first value, stated value as a church is take truth seriously. And yet the goal is not acquiring truth and information. It's really important. We got to have it. But the goal isn't simply to acquire truth and information. What is the goal? It's salvation. And this word means healing. The goal is, is salvation and healing and experiencing life to the full that Jesus intended for us. Now, I know there are some of you in here. You grew up on a farm. Where are my, where are my farm kids at? Who grew up on a farm? All right. So you can help me out here. Is the goal of farming to plant a crop? What's the goal of farming? To harvest harvest a crop. Teaching is like planting, right? But experiencing salvation and healing and life to the full that Jesus wants for us, that's harvesting, okay? The New Testament book of 1 Timothy, it's a book full of truth, but it's also a book about life. I want you to, if you're a note taker, would you write this down? This is gonna be our series thesis. We teach what we know, but reproduce who we are. We teach what we know, but reproduce who we are. And that stupid, silly little game that I did with you earlier, it's about helping us remember that though what we teach and our example are equal in importance, they're not equal in impact. They're equal in importance, but they're not equal in impact, and we gotta have both. Because you know what? If we teach the truth, but we don't model it, we don't have credibility. Well, on the flip side, if we model truth but don't teach it, others won't have understanding. We've got to have both our doctrine, what we believe, and we've got to teach it, and our life has to model it, has to exemplify it together. Now, I would love for you, if you grab a Bible, maybe out of the seat back pocket in front of you, I'd love for you to, to turn to 1 to Timothy. If you want to use your phone, totally use your phone. That's okay if you're trying to figure out how the Bible is laid out. Maybe you don't know where First Timothy is. It's in the second half of the Bible, uh, called the New Testament. It's the fifteenth book in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, then Timothy. All right, and so you'd be looking that up. And each week, as we go along through this series, I'm going to unveil a bit more and a bit more about the context and what's going on around and behind uh, this book. And it's really not a book. It is a letter. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a younger leader named Timothy. And Timothy's responsibilities included being a leader of leaders, and part of his responsibilities included appointing elders or pastors in the church at Ephesus, and elders, pastors, basically the same thing. And it's important for us to understand this, that they never would have thought about church as a location. Church simply meant all those people, the collection of people who are followers of Jesus. And the church at Ephesus was organized into a network of smaller congregations that met and houses in and around that city. And this letter that was written by the Apostle Paul (laughs) addressed some serious leadership issues that young Timothy was going to have to address. But it wasn't written to just him. I mean, this letter was shared with all the different congregations, all the the different house churches, and it was copied and, and distributed. It was copied and distributed and shared with churches in faraway regions too, and we gotta ask ourselves why? If this is a letter about leadership to a person in a position of leadership, why would it be shared with everyone? The answer is this. Leadership is a destination of discipleship. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. It doesn't matter whether you're in your career building towards your career or you're in retirement. It doesn't matter your income level, your gender, your relationship status. All of those things are irrelevant to your call to leadership if you are a follower of Jesus. You are called to use whatever influence you have to help people take a step towards Jesus or to take their next step with Jesus. So let's think about that, and we're going to read in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read this, and we're going to break it down to verses 3 through 5, and then I'm going to skip to 18 to 20. We'll come back and cover everything else in between, but let's just start there now. Verse 3 says this, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people to not teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. And the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, and sincere faith. So if you would, let's jump ahead to verse 18. He says, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. Apparently there are prophecies made about Timothy, how he's going to be a leader. We'll explore that in coming weeks. So that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. You've got a job to do, and it might be hard. Holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered, shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, before we dig into the guts of that passage, I want to ask you a really important question. Who likes ice cream? (laughs) All right. I love ice cream. Uh, This smells good and... um, I think, it's, I think it's fantastic. And uh, from what I've seen, it doesn't matter how cold it is outside, there's always a line wrapped around flapdoodles. So I know many of you like ice cream too. And I'm happy to share my ice cream with you today. But before I do, let's add some toppings because ice cream needs toppings. So I'm just going to get some just yummy, yummy mustard on here. Oh, man, that's great. And uh, we got some Heinz 57. We get some, yeah. You know, got some oh, ketchup there. Now, who wants some ice cream? All right? All right, if your hand is raised, I expect you to be a volunteer in junior high ministry. Now, <laughs> this is what was going on at the church at Ephesus. They took something good and beautiful. They took the gospel. And they mixed in some ugly stuff. And they made the gospel, they made the way of Jesus feel ugly and look ugly. It made life with Jesus something that was unattractive to people in the church and outside the church. And the result of what was going on is that people's faith was shipwrecked. I don't think the Apostle Paul was angry. I know he was not being mean. He was being serious. And to that context, he says to young Timothy, he says, command certain people. You're going to have to use your authority here. You're going to have to flex your authority muscle to command certain people to not teach false doctrines, to not allow these things to happen any longer. And the whole point behind this, the goal... The command is what? The goal of the command is what? It's all about love. Let me tell you something you already know. It is so easy to tell the truth and not be loving, isn't it? It's also really easy to try and be loving and to not tell the truth. But in Jesus, and in the gospel, in the way of Jesus, love and truth are always united they are inseparable and one is never compromised for the sake of the other would you write this down if our doctrine isn't rooted in love by doctrine I mean what we believe if it isn't rooted in love and if it dilutes our unity with jesus and each other it's not true there's room for All kinds of different people in our church and in every church. But do you know what there's not room for? Do you know what we can never tolerate? Lies. False teaching. Anything that would unravel our unity with Jesus or unravel our unity with each other. In life, we get what we tolerate. Let's never, ever tolerate that. But this leads us to what might feel like a hard question. Does this mean that we're never allowed to disagree? Well, yeah, we can disagree. And we're allowed to disagree on things that are considered non-essentials or secondary matters. And we'll explain that a little bit more in in, in a few minutes. But we're, we're allowed to disagree. And we might find that we disagree on a lot of stuff. And you know what? I promise you this. There are things that you are right about and I'm wrong about. The problem is I'm either too ignorant or I'm too arrogant right now to be able to see it. And I'll be patient with you, and I hope that you'll be patient with me. Let's imagine that there's something that's really, really significant and important to you. And this thing is really significant and important to me, and we never, ever agree. Did you know that's allowed? Did you know that's okay? Okay. Because you know, not only is it allowed, it probably should be expected. Now, I think, I don't know if everybody knows, but I think a lot of you know that for the past year and a half to two years, the Elder Board and I have been engaged in a real rigorous study of the subject of men and women and leadership in the church. And some of the questions we've been wrestling with are, are should women be restricted from certain positions of leadership? Or should women be included and, and able to serve in and, and occupy any position of leadership? In the church. And last year, our elders made a promise to the congregation that they're going to share with you all what they believe our church practice should be. And they've promised they're going to do that at the annual meeting. It's going to be next Sunday night. I hope that you're there. Please come. Even if you're not a voting member, I hope you're going to be there. And in week three of this series, which is two weeks from today, in week three of this series, we are going to honestly engage and walk through what might be one of the most, what definitely is one of the most controversial passages in the entire New Testament. And it is 100% about whether or not women are supposed to be restricted from positions of leadership and authority. And we are going to tackle it head on and we're not going to flinch. And you know what's going to happen when we're done with all of that? People are still going to disagree. Because good-hearted, intelligent people who love Jesus sometimes just understand and disagree on what the Bible is intending to communicate. And do you know why that's allowed? Do you know why we should never be afraid of that? It's because agreement is not the basis of our unity. As a matter of fact, agreement is a pathetic foundation for unity. The foundation for our unity is that we are connected to and included in Jesus. That's the foundation of our unity. And if we ever use disagreement as a license to divide or to be divisive, we are taking something ugly and mixing it in with the gospel. You think adding ketchup and mustard to ice cream is bad? Mixing division with the gospel does serious damage to our ability to live out life to the full that Jesus intended for us. Mixing in division with the gospel does serious damage to our ability to model the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus. Mixing in division with the gospel the serious damage to our ability to share the gospel with others the way of jesus is so much better it's just different and what comes naturally what comes naturally to everyone everywhere is this is to only associate with or to calcify into tribes based on similarity But this is what Jesus has been doing all along. He's been bringing together people who are nothing like each other, people who would otherwise never get along with each other, and making us all his body, of which he is the head. And together we grow into maturity and love and unity, not because we agree, but because we are connected to him, our head. And, of course, there are going to be foundational big things that we absolutely agree on. But there's also going to be things that we don't agree on. And this raises another question, and it's really the subject of what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Are there things that we cannot disagree on? Are there disagreements that we absolutely cannot tolerate? And the answer to that question is, is yes. The things that we cannot afford to disagree on are things that are considered essentials of the faith. And sometimes the word for that, uh, to describe that, is orthodox. So here's some examples of some essentials of the faith that we can never disagree on. The deity of Jesus, that he's fully God and fully man. That the resurrection actually happened. It's a real event from history. That The only way to, to be saved is to trust in what Jesus did for us, not what we do. These are essentials of the faith. And when it comes to things that are essentials of the faith or matters of orthodoxy, we hold on to them like this. But there's a much bigger list of things, maybe what feels like an infinite list of things that are non-essential or secondary things. And, and it doesn't mean that they're not significant or important. The th- Examples of some secondary things would be like speaking in tongues, the subject of men and women and leadership, uh, different ways of, of doing baptism. Those are secondary issues. And secondary or non-essentials, we hold like this. And we always hold on to each other like this. And if this feels a little bit too abstract and like you need some handholds, if you think about a married couple, ultimately a married couple has to agree on whether or not they're going to have kids. That's an essential, right? Eventually they have to agree. For The rest of their life, there's always going to be room for disagreement on how to parent their kids, Moms and dads can have different approaches on, on how to parent. And sometimes the dad is going to practice mutual submission by deferring to mom's approach. And sometimes mom is going to practice mutual submission by deferring to dad's approach. But disagreements on, on ways to approach parenting is never, it should never bring division in the home, should never bring division between mom and dad unless unless harm and abuse is inserted In this situation, does that make sense? And this is what false teaching does. And this is a characteristic of false teaching. It always brings harm and abuse to the church family. And that's why the Apostle Paul responded so seriously. He says, Command, use your authority, do not allow people to teach false doctrines. And of course, the goal of all of this is love. What we know about the false teaching in Ephesus is that it wasn't based on truth. It was not rooted in love. And it resulted in division. It resulted in disputes and destroyed destroyed faith. There are at least three streams of false teaching that were flowing into, polluting, bringing abuse and harm to people in the church at Ephesus. The first was the teaching of a group of people called the Judaizers, And Judaizers are those folks that misrepresented and misapplied the Old Testament. And typically when they did that, it promoted and perpetuated attitudes of racism within the church. And it brought really oppressive religious rules that people could never live up to. The second stream of false teaching in the church... um, was an early version of something called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism had all kinds of weird and strange uh, things attached to it. And Gnosticism taught that uh, Eve was created before Adam, and Adam was the one who was deceived in the garden and sin, and Eve wasn't even there. But a feature, a defining feature of Gnosticism was all about acquiring secret knowledge. And as the more you kind of got this secret knowledge, you leveled up and you got greater power, privilege, and prestige. The third stream of false teaching in, in the church at Ephesus related to belief in and practice and, and worship of the goddess Artemis. And belief and practice and worship of the goddess Artemis, it was to the religious landscape what Google is for information and technology for us today. It touched just about everything. And, and we're going to, in each week, we're going to unpack that a little bit more. But one of the things we need to know right now is that it flaunted wealth and promoted and celebrated lifelong singleness and, and celibacy. And this chaotic mixture of different false teaching in the church at Ephesus, it resulted that there were fist fights breaking out when the church gathered together. And there's this social hierarchy based on wealth and knowledge. And there were people going around refusing to let Uh, couples get married so there's an explosion of adult single women in the church and they were expecting the church to take care of them financially and to pay their bills this church had serious leadership issues and the task of leadership for young timothy was to be an example of the truth and teach the truth for the salvation and healing of people in this church and this leads me to ask a question Are there any issues like that for us? I mean, the issues that Timothy were facing, they were urgent. Are there urgent issues that churches face today? I think there are. The American Evangelical Church, I may not be intelligent enough to identify or understand all of them, but there are three kind of currents of things that I think that we need to be aware of and not tolerate. Those things are power, segregation, and fundamentalism. Whenever the gospel is mixed with power and control, it always results in harm and abuse of people inside and outside the church. And there's a lot of ways that this is expressed. But some of the ways it's expressed is bullying tactics in order to get your way, covering up or ignoring major uh, moral failures of leaders, and conflating the gospel with political ideology. These things have probably been going on for too long, tolerated for too long. Let's never tolerate that in our church. You might be surprised to see this word. Would you be surprised to know that somewhere around 80%, and it seems like the number is growing, that 80% or more of American evangelical churches are predominantly or exclusively just one ethnic culture? This is where it's important to remember our serious thesis. We teach what we know, but we produce who we are. And just about every church would tell you that racism is wrong, is sin, segregation is wrong, and it's a sin. But why do we keep reproducing? We keep reproducing churches full of people who just look like each other. And it's really easy just to reproduce small groups full of people who just look like each other. Let's never be satisfied. Let's never be satisfied with that in our church. A defining feature of fundamentalism is not a commitment to protect things that are critically important. A defining feature of fundamentalism is it makes everything critically important. And everything is equal importance. Which means there's no room to disagree. Fundamentalism makes agreement the basis of unity instead of our inclusion in Christ as the basis of our unity. And this right here has broken and busted up families and even churches across our country. Let's never tolerate that in our church. A challenge we're going to have to face, a challenge we're going to have to get honest about is that there are people who will use the Bible to promote these things. There are people who will use the Bible to try and promote things that the Bible would never support and biblical writers never intended to communicate. That happens today and that was happening back then. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. He says, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. They want to they teach the Bible. They don't, even, they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good. What's this word? Yeah. That's a big word, isn't it? We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebellious, and I'm more like this than that, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. If we're gonna take Paul seriously here, I think this is something that we have to accept. It's our responsibility to know the difference between use and abuse of Scripture. It's our responsibility to know the difference between use and abuse of Scripture. I can't remember who it was, but somebody once said, the Bible's like a torture victim. Abuse it long enough, and you'll get it to say anything you want. Something that we can never tolerate are people who would twist the Bible into saying something that it never intended to say. And something that we can never tolerate are those who would twist the Bible in explaining away what the Bible does intend to communicate. Both bring harm. And depending on our temperaments, we probably find that we're more vulnerable to one than the other. If you're the kind of person that you're drawn towards certainty and control, you might find that you're vulnerable to the temptation of adding extra commands. If you're the kind of person who's drawn towards nuance and independence, you might find that you're vulnerable to the temptation of removing essential commands. Both are harmful. Both errors are harmful to the church. God's law is good. And it is for our good. We don't need any more commands than what he gave and we don't need any less commands than what he gave. John stopped was a uh, brilliant biblical scholar. I uh, was a trusted voice internationally for what the gospel is and what evangelicalism uh, should be. And talking about this passage and the goodness of God's law and the goodness of his commands and why we need it is, he said this, the fundamental principle that the law is for the lawless applies to every kind of law. For example, the reason we need speed limits is that there are so many reckless drivers on the road. I've seen you guys. Um, The reason we need boundaries and fences is that the only way to prevent unlawful trespass. The reason we need civil rights and race relation legislation is in order to protect citizens from insult, discrimination, and exploitation. If everybody could be trusted to respect everybody else's rights, laws to safeguard them would not be necessary. I want you to remember, what did did Paul say? The, The goal of the command is what? Love. Remember that Jesus once said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. God's God's laws, God's commands are good. They're not rules that we keep to kind of prove something. They're like boundary markers. They're guardrails to keep us inside of his love and the life of thriving that Jesus gave his life so that we could have. God's laws and his commands are good. And yet I know in a room this size, that there's gonna be some of us that there's some commands that are just like, ah, I don't know if I like that one. You might have winced a little bit as I read some of the things that the Apostle Paul had to say and read some of the things that he called sin. I think just about everybody could say, yes, we agree. Slave trading, that's a sin. But for modern Westerners to affirm everything that Scripture calls sexual sin, oh, for some of us, that's hard. and if I'm talking to you, get to hear me, I'm not gonna try and explain that away. I believe God's law and what he says is good. But if I'm talking to you, this is what I wanna ask you to do. Would you give yourself the gift to really hear and receive everything that the Apostle Paul has to say next? He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He said, I was a bad dude. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the very worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe. Paul's saying, if Jesus could save me, he could save anybody. For those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And then he just wraps up with some, he just can't help himself, he's praising. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Timothy is facing serious leadership challenges in this church, and the Apostle Paul does not give him a manual full of leadership tactics and techniques. You know what he gives him? The gospel. He doubles down on the gospel, and Paul models something that we call gospel fluency. And gospel fluency is I identify the content of the gospel, I understand the implications of the gospel, and then I apply the motivations of the gospel as I live it out. The apostle Paul recognized part of the content of the gospel is this, I'm a bad dude, and my sin is serious. Did he say, I was the worst of sinners? So he said, I am. He said, my sin is serious. Because he understood the nature and the severity and the cost of his sin, it caused him to reverence the grace and the patience of Jesus. And he knew the only reason he had life was because of what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection. He, he reminded himself in Timothy of the content of the gospel. And then the implications of the gospel we're gonna see here, and we're gonna see throughout this series is part of the implication is, is it leaves us To be humble, it leads us to be gracious as we lovingly engage and correct those who are in error. Even, we're loving, even as we engage those who engage in serious, abusive error. We apply the motivations of the gospel. And what motivated Paul? He was just over the moon, grateful for what Jesus had done, and he loved Jesus. It was Jesus' love for him, and that's what motivated him. To live this way. And what he's saying to Timothy is this. As you're engaging all of these difficult, urgent issues, let's do as Jesus did and love all others the way he loved us. Let's do as Jesus did and love all others the way that he loved us. And so we're going to tell the truth. And we're going to embody and we're going to exemplify the truth. And if ever we encounter that someone who is doing something harmful or teaching something harmful, we're not going to shy away. We are going to engage. But we're going to be humble. And we're going to begin with the belief that we don't have the right to correct somebody else in their error until we are so gripped and grieved by our own sin that we think of ourselves as captains of the sin team. I want to put something on the screen. Before I put it up, let me say this. When this becomes something that we can say with honesty and integrity, that's when we're ready to engage. Do you want to see what it is? I'll never be more disappointed in you than I am in me. I'll never be more disappointed in you than I am in me. And this is what I'm suggesting. That if we're not able to say that yet with honesty and integrity, our primary job is to get the gospel in us before we try to get the gospel in somebody else. If we're not able to say this with honesty and integrity, our primary job is to get the gospel in us before we try to get the gospel in somebody else. Is this for the faint of heart? I don't think it is, is it? This is not weak sauce Christianity. But this is part of life in the gospel that Jesus said, It'll make us, it'll make you like a city shining brightly on a hill for a world that is locked in darkness. If this is how we are, do you think it will be easier? Do you think it will aid people and help people in being able to see the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus in his way? And what they see and experience from us. Now what happens if we do all of that and someone doubles down and they continue in teaching and living out and practicing things that are harmful and abusive? What do we do? Apostle Paul says this. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command, keeping with the promises. Remember who you are. Remember the leader that you've been called to be. And remembering that, that you will fight the battle well, that you will endure, because this is sometimes going to be hard. Hold on to faith and a good conscience. Which some have rejected. It's shipwrecked their faith. And then he names names. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I hand over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. That sounds intense, doesn't it? What does that mean? This is figurative and urgent language communicating something. And for us to understand it, it's important to remember when the church gathers together, Who is our king? Jesus. We are under his rule. He is our Lord. But out in the world, outside of the community of faith, outside of the church, that's where Satan is running the show. And what the apostle Paul is saying is, you know what? They can't be here with us. They're going to, I'm turning them over to the world. What the apostle Paul is saying, they are not allowed to meet with a gathered church. The apostle Paul is saying, I'm not letting them join us when we gather together the Apostle Paul is talking about something that we often refer to as church discipline. And the purpose is, so that it's not punishment. It's not trying to hurt those guys. The goal is repentance. The goal is that they would say, oh my goodness, I, I, this is not the path I want to be on. And that they would return, that they would repent, that there would be redemption, that there would be a restoring of a relationship. That is the goal, love is always the goal and it is never loving, you gotta hear me, it might be hard, it might be scary, but it is never loving to ignore when someone is being harmful and abusive. Love never does that. It's not good to the one who's being harmed and it's not good, to, it's not loving for the one who's doing the harming. And there are times that our church has to do this. There was a time that, there was a time I had to say to somebody who I love, Someone who's a bit older and married, trying to seduce people in their early 20s. If you don't knock this off, you can't be here. And so they're not allowed to be here. And it breaks my heart, and I keep reaching out to them. But the goal, the whole point of that is love and ultimately restoration. So they could see if you keep walking down that road, it leads you to something you don't want. Turn to Jesus. And so let's end. By remembering Jesus and practicing a little gospel fluency together, Jesus was expelled so that we never have to be expelled. Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. That's what the cross is about. Jesus died so that we could have life. Jesus was condemned so that we could be adopted into the family of God. And the resurrection shows that it is not sentimentality. It proves it. This is what Jesus taught. This is what he lived. This is why he died, and it is what he lived for again. So that in him, life and salvation and healing could be reproduced in us. This is what we believe. May it also be how we live. What we teach and what we show. Let's walk with and follow Jesus. Let me pray for you. God, if we dare to get honest about the reality of our own sin, how could we even speak? How could we even call your name? You are so incredibly kind and patient and loving and forgiving that it is astounding all that we have in Christ and we thank you, and we praise you, and we throw ourselves on you. And God, we pray that we would see the truth and understand it with our minds, that we would live it and align to it with our lives. And God, we pray that we would be people who not only say it, but we exemplify it, and you would use us to help other people see the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus. And it is in his name we pray for these things. Amen.